Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of your microdosing brainwashing. It's these little incremental things that make up the whole part of your own identity. One of the first things I'll never forget going into the library and realizing that the encyclopedias were missing pages. They were glued together. They were black markered out. Anything that had to do with science, physical anatomy, anything that challenged spirituality was all removed. Things got serious pretty quick with me. They really kind of, I think, saw me come in and they were really scared that I was going to influence their youth. And so they started really trying to control me pretty quickly. They really came in really hard, really fast as far as my clothing and how I wore my hair and how I walked and how I talked. How you walked? Oh, yeah. They would watch you walk as a female to make sure that you were not walking inappropriately. I don't think that I would have been able to go without having a complete public mental breakdown. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. As always, if you're only listening and you want to see our faces, you can go to our YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can interact, which really helps the algorithm promote the video so we can bring more awareness to these topics and get more eyes on it. So we love to see your comments, your words of encouragement, and if you have any suggestions for people that you want to see on the podcast, definitely let us know. So today's guest, I'm so excited to be connected with her. She's a fellow podcaster, similar missions, trying to expose the dark underbelly of these different groups, these cults. She specifically focuses on plain people. In fact, her podcast is called The Plain People's Podcast. She was also seen on the Sins of the Amish documentary, which we have covered in great detail with other guests who have been on our show so far. And we are going to be talking about her life converting from atheism all the way into Mennonites, leaving the church, and now becoming an advocate. So thank you so much for joining us, Jasper Hoffman. Thank you guys for having me. So happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. I was really excited when you agreed to come on. I was like, yeah, fellow podcaster, and we can just rip off (laughs) of each other. I really want to talk about your upbringing and also kind of geek out with you and talk about from your perspective, because you've interviewed so many different people from the Amish and the Mennonite communities, the through lines that you end up seeing just as we end up seeing on our podcast as far as what are things that are not just isolated incidents. What are things that are consistently coming up as far as the abuse or the lack of education or whatever problems may arise because of the community itself? So you have an incredibly interesting childhood. We were just speaking off camera and I was like, this is going to be a really colorful episode, guys. So hold on to your seats. It's going to be really fun. So let's first talk about a little bit about your parents, how they grew up and how that affected essentially moving in the complete opposite direction. Yeah. So great question. And I feel like this is asked a lot. Why would a family outside of the church join into a cult? What would make them? And I'm like, that's always the million dollar question, right? And I wish that I had an answer for everybody. Um, But for us, there were a couple key key components. Um, So I was born in Southern California, 
And whenever I was three years old, my parents moved to uh, very far up north in Humboldt County, uh, California, so the Pacific Northwest. It was very beautiful, but it was very isolated. A lot of that came from my mom growing up in Hollywood and having this, I love to describe it as the Wolf of Wall Street style um, life growing up, and she really had an aversion to it. She really did not want me to be raised in a similar environment. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that as a parent myself, why you would want to move somewhere. (laughs) So yeah, so we we ended up moving up north. And if you know anything about like Humboldt County, it's very much where the hippies go and very um, off the grid type of people. My family moved there and really got into homesteading and they really loved gardening and they live, loved kind of living an alternative lifestyle. Um, I was not raised in religion at all. My mom was raised Catholic and hated it and rejected it. And so I was not ever raised um, in an environment that had any spirituality whatsoever. It's interesting, though, because California is always ahead of the times in a lot of ways. And so in the early 90s, there was this large homeschool movement. And at that time, homeschooling was really this hush-hush thing. I remember um, by the time I was in finished third grade, my parents decided to pull me out of public school. And they'd asked me Mm. if I wanted to do that. And I said, yes, because all I wanted to do was ride horses. So I thought this, this makes a lot of sense. I don't have to go to school and I can quickly do things and then just spend my time riding and being outdoors. So, uh, but I remember like this, this hush hushness of like when I went to the grocery store and it was during school hours, like I had to stay in the car. And if anybody asked me why I was out of school, that I needed to tell them that it was because I was sick or, you know, it was, there was all of this fear within the community as far as the legality of it. At that time, because there was no internet, at least accessible in the everyday household, uh, textbooks were always a challenge to find different types of textbooks to educate. And we had a really large homeschool group. I would say there was, my recollection was around 30 families, which was pretty large in the area. And they were very active. Like we did a lot of field trips and a lot of different things. But through that, a lot of the families were religious-based belief system. And so around that time, my mom, my grandfather died. Mm. And that was a huge catalyst in the trajectory of my mom going into religion. Um, Her father was a devout Catholic. And one of the things that she promised him whenever he passed away was that he would take me to church. So I suddenly went from living in this very alternative lifestyle um, to, to going to church on Sundays and suddenly finding myself in a homeschool uh, group full of fundamentalists, getting kind of sucked into it. Uh, I was nine at the time. And yeah, so the textbook thing. So that's actually how we were introduced to the Mennonites. Uh, There was a textbook company out of Crockett, Kentucky called Rod and Staff, and they produced textbooks that were supplied to all of the Amish and Mennonite schools around the world. The fundamentalists in our community really liked these books because they were religious-based. So they were sending all of these textbooks to this one particular area, enough so that the publishing company was curious why they were sending all of these textbooks 
if there was no church. So they actually reached out to the church sec- or the, to the homeschool secretary and asked if we would be interested in having a revival service if they sent missionaries. And so this went out into the homeschool newsletter and uh, it was voted yes that there was an interest and they also wanted to be able to send other missionaries um, so that way they would have kind of a, a church full of Mennonites there. And so they asked if anybody would house them. And so my parents were really excited to be able to put up the people that make quilts. I'll always remember that. That was my mom's thing. She's like, oh, those people that make quilts. <laughs> and so uh, my mom is a wonderful host and entertainer. And so we opened up the house uh, to a couple and began really kind of delving into the religious aspect and asking all of the questions as far as the lifestyle and and why people would join in. So they made it very accessible for people um, and ended up starting a mission church in Northern California. It's still there today. It was a Mennonite uh, church, Nationwide Mennonite Fellowship was the original church there. So yeah, so we ended up attending there and for a, a while, I would say over a year, but they would not baptize my father um, because he was working on Sundays. And this was the first red flag of hypocrisy within the, the religion. Right. And he challenged them that they were all dairy farmers and could milk on Sunday. But he, even though he was working at a lumber, uh, lumber yard and had a sign-up sheet, for every single Sunday that he was scheduled to work, he would trade days with all of the men. And he had over a year scheduled out. Wow. And they still would not accept that as a, um, a sign of good faith that he was not working on Sundays. Right. And But yet they could work on Sunday. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that was, that was kind of an introductory phase, I would say, into the, the church and the community. So... At that point, they were really inquisitive about joining something that was more established, had a school for me. Um, And so we ended up moving to the Midwest in 1997 and moved to a more conservative Mennonite church called the Eastern Pennsylvania Mennonite Church. I can go on and on and on, but that's basically how we ended up in within the communities and members of the Eastern Pennsylvania Mennonite Church. Okay, I've got some questions. First of all, going from an atheist household to extreme Christian fundamentalism to Mennonite is a huge shift for anybody, let alone a child. So I want to know what's going through your mind as a kid getting pulled out of public school. You said initially you were excited. Did that excitement continue? Was it as good as you thought it would be? Talk us through those changes, those actual changes that you faced as a child. Yeah, that's a good question, um, because it's a yes and type of thing. Um, I think I was so young that it's very easy as a child to look at something and just be excited about what is right in front of you. And so there were a lot of things that I I remember, maybe I don't have the words for, but I remember the feeling of, and I loved parts of it. There was sadness in feeling like I... I really wanted to go to school, Mm. public school, and I really wanted to go to high school because the high school had a rodeo team. I didn't, (laughs) this is terrible. I didn't care as much about the education, but I really wanted a rodeo. (laughs) That's not terrible. (laughs) Yeah, this was like my whole goal. And so 
I, I remember distinctly really being upset uh, because my parents would not allow me to go back into the public school system to do that. I also, my dad's an alcoholic. I grew up in a very unsafe and unstable home. So when we became Mennonites, he became sober. That was very difficult if you've ever grown up with any sort of addict. Um, whenever they stop any sort of um, substance, cold turkey, it can become very violent and very volatile. Mm. And so I really experienced that and the fear. I lived with a lot of fear. And on the other side of that, once he became sober, my dad really changed. And in some ways, for the better, our household became a little bit more stable because it suddenly had rules. Uh, the church has so many standards and so many rules that it provides. And as we know, children thrive on structure. So that structure felt really good after coming from a, a, a past where there wasn't a lot. Mm. That also came with having, I wouldn't say tyrant of a father, um, but the, the way that the church is structured is very much the headship and, and the, the order of the family. And that can create a lot of power dynamics that can be unsettling for a child as well. So it's like it can feel good because you know where you're supposed to, what you're supposed to do and where you're supposed to be. And it can also create a lot of um, unease if you go outside the lines on that. Right. Right. That makes sense. Because all of a sudden you don't really know, is this okay? Is it not okay? Am I going to get in trouble for this? trying to figure out the boundaries of these new rules. And also, I imagine it was probably maybe more than your mom bargained for, especially if they had more of like an equal marriage initially speaking, like gender role speaking. Did she find that she was like, oh, wait, I don't know if this is what I wanted? No, I don't think that that was the experience. I think that my mom really enjoyed it. There's that it's the beautiful love bombing period. I think mm. our entire experience in Northern California was love bombing. Um, we really weren't in the nitty gritty parts of, of the church experience yet because like I always like, and there's so many ways to join into cults and religion. And instead of jumping off the deep end and cannonballing in, we waded in. So it was a gradual brainwashing. Okay. There were so many parts of the community that felt great. There's belonging. There's love. I mean, they're so good. at There's meals. There's food. There's, you know, there's connectiveness. There's community. And it's unlike anything else out here in, when I say here, the world. And so to experience that at the first time, I mean, it's how can you not? And it's beautiful. It's pretty. There's flowers. There's yeah. pretty fabrics. Everybody's quilting and housekeeping. And um, it's very much a fantasy world. So if you've bought into the fantasy, it's really hard to see the underbelly. And if it does pop up, it's like, oh, that's just an isolated incident. And so, no, I don't think that my mom didn't, she definitely did not experience that until later on when we had moved to Southern Illinois. Got it. 
Okay, but eventually it did catch up with her. It did. Oh, for sure. It caught up with all of us. Mm. I think the hardest part was for me as a child um, that stands out and that I can really are core memories is coming home and my clothes were changed out and I had to wear dresses. That was my next question. Mm -hmm. That was difficult because once again, I just wanted to be a cowgirl. Yeah. I couldn't. That and then also I loved music absolutely loved music. And when my grandfather had passed, he had gifted me um, this beautiful antique player piano that was his. Mm. And so I was learning how to play piano. And the particular churches that we went into did not allow musical instruments. So when we moved um, and I was taken away from my childhood home and my friends and the experiences I was having to move to this more conservative church at a very young age, um, they got rid of my piano as well. And that was deeply upsetting. Yeah. (laughs) Of all things, it was like, that was just, that was the thing that I really remember feeling great loss over because I think I realized at that point that my things were leaving and I could not at that age advocate for myself to to hold on to them. And I, I had no control over my life at all. And that was a terrible feeling. Yeah, it seemed like they were just stripping away your hobbies one at a time until you're left with this person that you're going, wait, how did this happen? (laughs) How did we get here? How am I in dresses with no horses to ride? I mean, you had horses, right, within your Mennonite community, but were you able to ride them as you did before? Oh, we can get into that. That was a huge controversy um, for me. So at that time, it was not encouraged for girls to ride. And my passion and love of horses created a lot of issues for me, a lot of pain. I did have a horse. I did, I did get one whenever I was 15. Um, but it was, it was a huge fight. I lost a lot of people in my life because of that. Um, so yeah, so it was, it, it wasn't easy at all, but I, and I love that you say that. Yeah, it was really stripping everything away from my core self and my core identity that really truly make me who I am um, until I was left with really nothing. But the church is good at that. Yeah. They, you know, they are really good at that. (laughs) Right. Cults are very good at that. Putting everyone into this box and creating a conformity that you don't really have a choice and you think it's your choice, but at the end of the day, it's coercive choice where you can choose to ride horses, but that means you're choosing to get kicked out of the community or choosing to be shunned or choosing, you know, whatever disciplinary thing they have put in place. So real quick, before we move into you going into this community, I am wondering where the IBLP, the Institute and Basic Life Principles came in, because you had mentioned before we started that you were using some of those same principles and we've done so many episodes on it. And I was just like, wait a second, there's a crossover here here. We have to mention this. There is a crossover because it is like I always say all of these cults, it doesn't matter if you're Mennonite, Amish, Bill Gothard, name it. It's all like lasagna. So we all have pretty much the same ingredients and we all have a family recipe. Yeah. Right. And so if we were, if you and I were to make lasagna and we're having a huge lasagna get together and all of your guests that have come on, we're all going to bring the recipe that was handed down to us, right? That we somehow picked up either in our church or from our family. And it's all going to taste a little bit different, but it's the same stuff. It's the same components and it crosses over. So Bill Gothard's training is just the marinara sauce that's just getting all <laughs> over everybody's stuff, right? <laughs> yes. 
So for us, it was um, that homeschool movement wasn't just in Northern California and that was it. It was carried over. And because there was a lack of resources for anybody, that was a huge part. The Basic Life Principles was also just penetrating into all of these communities and all of these fundy families that were home churching. I mean, like we home churched for a little bit. And if you were to meet my family, we still joke about this. Like we are not home church people. Like why are we not having mimosas instead? Like we're talking (laughs) about this stuff. But you know, you can sucked into it. And, and so that was definitely part of the homeschool. Like we had varying levels of fundy families within our unit, but we were all still really involved with each other. Mm. So yes, that definitely came into play. I will say that I was more of a rod and staff girly. Uh, I really got into the plain communities more than Bill Gothard, but yeah, that, that stuff was around. Great. <laughs> That's so interesting. And for those who aren't familiar with the other videos that we've done, or Bill Gothard and IBLP, it's basically this blanket institution that permeates into extreme Christian fundamentalist churches all over the place. So it's not a single church. He kind of created these programs for parents to train up their children, essentially. And it also crosses over with Mike and Debbie Pearl with To Train Up a Child, extremely book, which we've also covered. So you have these principles where the basics of it is basically patriarch and then mom and then kids and you're all under these umbrellas of authority, have as many children as possible, dress extremely conservatively. And I also want to point out that I'm not against homeschooling. I'm against not giving children full access to education because you want to funnel it through extreme religious teachings. And I think that's where it gets murky. So I just wanted to point that out there, not against homeschooling, I'm against not allowing access to education, full education for these kids. So it's just a really interesting crossover. Okay, let's get into when you actually got to this community and how your life changed. I'd like to know kind of the basic rules around the communities because I know they can all vary greatly. So what are the major differences that you're noticing right away? Yeah, so this is great. I, I I wish that I could somehow tell you what my body does every time we go from like California to Southern Illinois, because I still have this within my body where it's like everything just became black. So at the time, my dad would constantly sing, uh, I see a red door and I want to paint it black. That's still like my ongoing song whenever I uh, talk about Mennonites, but it's true. So we going into the Eastern Church, things became much more conservative and much more controlling. The first thing we had to do was paint our family van black. We had, before we moved, bought a two-tone van to fit in with the rest of the Mennonites, and it was maroon and gray, and we moved, and that was the first thing that had to go. Uh, you were not allowed to have two-tone vehicles, and you were not allowed to have burgundy. Interesting. So um, everything had to be black or dark blue. Uh, there were a lot of rules about your vehicle, what type of – you could have only certain types of vehicles. You could only have certain types of uh, tires. You were not allowed to have a radio antenna at that time. They still made cars with external radio antennas. You had to cut it off. So we had to cut ours off and paint our car black. And 
we still were like, okay, this is fine. I mean, my mom was like, I mean, when you join the country club or the tennis club, you kind of have to like wear the right clothes. So this is the same thing. Like she was definitely bringing in her experience of Rolling Hills Tennis Club. In- <laughs> I was just going to say, because you said your mom grew up with Rolls Royce cars and limousines and she's like, yeah, just bring it's just so funny comparing like the rich and famous lifestyle to the Mennonites. Lifestyle, <laughs> rich and famous. Yeah, that was it. So everything was in context of like, I mean, you get a members only jacket. That's what she called the plain the plain suit too. Oh, so um, geez. it's it's true though. I mean, it really is. So yeah. So uh, that was that was the first kicker was um, doing that, and then also letting go of our car insurance. So you're not allowed to have insurance at all, and you become uh, religiously exempt. So this was like, oh. mm-hmm. so you actually uh, will have a, uh, a piece of paper that's certified through the state, and it has a state seal on it that says that you're religiously exempt from carrying insurance. And that was a big thing. Like, we let go of the car insurance. I mean, it's like all of these little micro, your micro dosing brainwashing like it's these Mm -hmm. little incremental things that uh make up the whole part of your own identity and i mean as you know how do you explain to somebody that you have not had car insurance for 10 years because you were religiously exempt when you're supposed to carry legally car insurance it's very difficult to come back into the world once you've kind of gone this way and let go of these things yeah so that was another key thing, um, was just these slow little incremental, we cut off the radio antenna, we lost our car insurance, um, and my dad would became, he started working for Mennonites. That was the first time that he had become employed by them. Um, and so he had to let go of his social security. So you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> so there's just all these things um, that you have to, to give up. And at that time, I, like I said, it was still kind of a little bit of a love bombing experience. We were the first family to join into this particular church from the outside. Uh, it was primarily three families that had been there. And they maybe had some community people that came to visit um, or to attend the church, but nobody had joined in. So here we were, rolling in hot from California. And, <laughs> with a two-tone uh, van. <laughs> with a two-tone van and, <laughs> and a teenage girl. And so, uh, as you can imagine, it was like, it was a lot for this community. Um, I had two brothers at that point. My, I've, they're 10 and 13 years younger than me. That was also part of the the fundamental stuff of like, hey, we've got to have more kids. So um, yeah, so I had these two brothers also. Uh, So there's a huge age gap and rolled into town and uh, hit the streets running with some trouble real quickly. So I I was enrolled in their their school. I was in ninth grade. There were two, two of us in ninth grade. The boy, he had never had anybody in his grade. So there was some competition there. And yeah, it was a three-room schoolhouse. And so I went from public school to homeschool to now suddenly Mennonite school. That was an adjustment. One of the first things I'll never forget was 
going into the library and realizing that the encyclopedias were missing pages. They were glued together. They were black markered out. So if you tried to hold them up, um, anything that had to do with science, physical anatomy, sex, anything, Darwinism, anything that challenged spirituality was all removed. Interesting. All of the books were approved by the board. Um, and so we we were starting to really narrow down all of the information that was coming in. Things got serious pretty quick with me. They really kind of, I think, saw me come in and they were really scared that I was going to influence their youth. And so they started really trying to control me pretty quickly. The first thing that they did, I had this watch that my best friend had given me before I moved. It was a going away present. We had matching watches and it was a gold faced watch um, with a little barrel racer on it. And um, they made me get rid of it because it was gold. You were not allowed to have any gold. Um, So their rules Going back to your question, like there is a standard book, right, for the community as far as for the Eastern Pennsylvania Mennonite Church, what the standards of the church are. And that will go into spiritual standards and then also lifestyle. So certain things that you're not allowed to do. The trouble is, is that they have all the unwritten rules and those change church by church, district by district, family by family, depending on how much they want to control you. And a lot of it also comes down to wealth and power and influence. So our church was more on the conservative side for the Eastern churches. Um, we, they're, they're sectioned off into districts. So you have a district that one bishop oversees versus the Amish church where they would have a bishop for each church. Um, so I believe at that time, it's either 12 or 14 bishops oversee all of the churches. Um, And then you would have your local ministry. So that would be your ministers, your deacons, um, and then they would report to the bishop. So kind of it would go the the bishop, the ministry, your father, your mother, um, and then you on the very bottom, especially as a female. So yeah, um, so moving in, like you could, you can read the standard book and be like, oh, this doesn't really sound that bad. And it's leaving out all of those gray rules and they change a lot. So for me, um, they really came in really hard, really fast, um, working on controlling me. So that way I was within church standard. They still didn't find that suitable. So they felt like they needed to change things around for me as far as my clothing and how I wore my hair and how I walked and how I talked and how I communicated and how you walked. Oh yeah. How, how can you walk incorrectly? The smaller you can make yourself and hold yourself in the better. Like you cannot walk enticingly. Um, you can't walk loosely. You can't sachet. You can't just move your hips like how you're supposed to. You have to walk extremely tight because you can't lead somebody astray. Like through walk. I mean, you can lead somebody astray through walking. So you have to be very cautious. According to them. Yeah, according to that. Yeah. So they would, um, case in point, so the youth would have Sunday school downstairs um, in the church basement. And instead of having the youth just side by side, it's segregated seating. Um, instead of having them walk behind down the back, they would walk you up the front. 
So you would have to walk in front of the entire church and everybody would watch you and how you walk. And then there was like small council rooms and then you would come down the stairs into the rooms. And so they would watch you walk as a female to make sure that you were not walking inappropriately. Uh, so there was all this pressure to just like make yourself small, certain particular body language. Um, you couldn't laugh too loud. That was always their complaint with me that I was too loud and too flirtatious with my language. And I used too big of words that were prideful. Wow. So, <laughs> it's a lot of control. A lot of control. What's an example of a prideful word? Can you remember any? Oh, I can actually, because this was just published. Give me just a second. I can pull this up. This was just published in like last month's publication. They have their own series. And there was an article on this. And this is something I've really had to teach myself is how to become more relaxed in my communication. And it's taken a really long time. It's really quick. Let me just read you this because you're going to. Yeah. Yeah. Becky, mother sound shocked. It is quite uncalled for to use such big words. Do you know what fantastic means? Stop. Mother wasn't quite sure herself. Why, something very wonderful, I think. And I've been wanting to use that for ever so long, Becky said. But now that she really thought about it, maybe it didn't mean what she thought. She went to the bookcase and got the dictionary. It took her a while to find the word because she's a stupid girl. That's what they're trying to say. Wow. Barbara came to look over her shoulders and ran and to help her find the word, she ran her finger down the column. Here it is. It means odd, unreal, strange, and wild in shape or manner, she read. But I thought, Becky stammered, listen, Becky. <laughs> listen, Becky, listen. <laughs> listen, Becky, Barbara was saying, I'm glad you are learning new words, but be careful how you use them. You'd better make sure you know what a word means before you ever use it. I don't think you really want your evening to be fantastic, do you? No, I guess not, Becky admitted. But right now I feel so elated I may have to use big words to express myself. Mother, who was listening inside, I'm afraid you are reading too many books, Becky, she said. There is so much to unpack. I just, where do we even start? First of all, Assuming that this girl should or is dumb for not being able to find anything. Telling her not to read so many books. So stay dumb and take every single word literally and be shamed for wanting to gain more knowledge and information. And be excited about her evening. I mean, really, that was it, too, where she wanted to use the word. She hoped she had a fantastic evening. Uh-huh. So... That is that. That's not, you're not going to find that in the church standard book, right? That you cannot use, there's a list of words. They do have certain words that you're not allowed to use. Like you're not allowed to say kids um, for Why? children. Because it's uh, goats, the goats and the sheep, the separation. So they are of, just so literal. So that's really they're it. literal. Yeah. And guess who still doesn't call children kids? You? Me. <laughs> I still can't do it. I still cannot do it. I don't call police officers cops. Like, I, there's all these slang that is, like, stuck with it where I'm just like, it feels so improper. But I do use the word fantastic. So, praise <laughs> me. To start. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So, it's really, it's, that's what's tricky about joining into this, these communities, though, is that you're not going to find a list. 
You're not going to, yeah. but you're going to say these things and then people are going to ostracize you. They're going to talk about you. You're going to have the ministry call you in and they're going to say that they're not. <laughs> My brother got called in because um, he was using the word yikes and it was a swear word and they wouldn't even say what, what it was and they, they wanted to punish him. And the thing is, is like when children use these words, they'll hit them in the schools. Oh. They'll punish them physically for using slang. So it just goes to show that it's like, it's very difficult because there's so much gray area that you can really get caught up in and mm -hmm. it can literally strip away to the point where you just don't speak because it's unsafe yeah. to speak. But then you have to speak because if you don't speak, then you're, then something's wrong and you can't ever let on that there's anything wrong or else you'll become um, a risk. So you have to play this game of like, oh, everything's just fine. It's great. It's wonderful. So much pressure. And were these the reasons that they wouldn't let you go to 10th grade? No, they, <laughs> there were a lot of reasons. Um, <laughs> yes, that. Um, I think my existence really caused a lot of problems. I had a love triangle that was going on um, <gasps> with two different you boys. Did. I did. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. You're a teenager. I know. And so I was causing a lot of issues because I think I I was the first person to come into this community. And as children are, you know, when you if you have chickens in a chicken coop their whole life and all of a sudden you just add a duck into it, it's going to like it just changes the structure of everything and creates all of this chaos and it can just become deeply unsettling if you're used to structure and it doesn't matter if you're a 40 year old man somehow this 14 year old is just creating stress for you and so you're gonna try and eradicate her I used a big word there sorry if any men <laughs> there were some different reasons but basically I was told that I was not allowed to come back to school um, for 10th grade and so at that point my education ended so how are you feeling because it sounds like you're the type of person that wants to learn more and expand and grow. And how are you feeling about this? Did they force you to do it at home? Did they give you any materials or just say, never mind, school's over for you? No, at that point, like life was really horrific for me. It's amazing how that one year you can do so much damage to somebody and to somebody's psyche within a year you can really, really damage somebody. And they did a very good job of that with me mm. um, over the course of that year from ninth grade to 10th grade. So I was really, really mentally unwell and I was barely functioning. And it, so it wasn't like this was the big thing. It was, it was a, a, well, of course, it's just one more thing um, added on to the dysfunction of how I was living. And I really don't think that I would have been able to successfully go to 10th grade with what they were doing to me and how they were controlling me. I really, I don't know if I would have been able to live. And I'm not saying that lightly. I don't think that I would have been able to go without having a complete uh, public mental breakdown mm -hmm. um, just with the pressure that came. So I think there may be a, a sense that I was relieved that I couldn't go because it just took one more pressure point, just a small pressure point off of my plate at that point. 
Right. I do remember feeling extremely, it's embarrassing to not, when you're in a community like this, which is a high pressure point community, uh, to be the person that's not allowed to go to school. I mean, talk about ostracizing Mm -hmm. and horrifically embarrassing. And you know that everybody is talking about why you can't go to school. So, and to answer your question, no, I was not encouraged. I do have a recollection of there being a, a discussion on finishing 10th grade. My, my mom, both my parents are college educated, so they're very smart and um, intelligent. But my mom was really dealing with the pressure also of the church in her own life and then also trying to raise two very high energy boys. I don't think my mom could handle it, uh, educating me. And I was just so lost and so incredibly deeply despondent that I think just keeping me alive was the biggest uh, thing on the on the front burner at that point. Yeah. Did this affect your relationships with your friends in the community? Did they isolate you even further? Well, the church did a really great job of taking them away from me. So that period of between ninth and 10th grade, they stripped away anybody that was close to me um, and shipped them off. The Mennonites are actually better. That's a terrible word. I need to find a a, a more sufficient word. Um, But they are very cunning at shipping children off illegally um, and trafficking children. And they will absolutely come in and take children out of their homes and place them where they feel like it's necessary. The ministry will do this and they are continuing to do this now. Um, and they, so they did that with everybody that was really close to me, any friends that I had, um, anybody that I cared about, they took away. They came and took my best friend in the middle of the night at three in the morning in July. Um, and then I did not see her until this June, 25, I think at 25 years wow. later. Yeah. So, I really was being stripped away, not only of my identity, right? They started with physical things, um, and then they moved towards taking away anything that I loved. Mm. Um, And that was – it's hard to find words to express what that feels like. And it's also hard for me still to, I think, put it into words because if I did, I would have to – come to terms with like the amount of loss that I was forced to deal with. Like this was, this was like placed on me and I had no escape. I could not leave. So I had to go along with it. And I fought as long as I had some fight in me. But I mean, honestly, towards the end, I didn't have fight in me anymore. I just expected to lose everything. Mm. I think the only thing that I, at that point that I still really, really fought for was uh, I had gotten a horse before all of this, well, in the midst of all of this. And that was one thing that they were trying to take away from me. And I said, absolutely not. Like I would literally kill myself if you, if you do this. So I got to keep my horse, but there was controversy around that. So I really had nothing. I had nobody. I was ostracized. I was not allowed to be involved in any gatherings or get togethers. I'll never forget this. So I was so excited because it was winter time and Uh, we had a really, really hard freeze. And so this is in Southern Illinois. It doesn't freeze that often, but all the ponds you were able to skate on. And that was just like the most romantic idea, right? And I got to get white ice skates, which we had to wear black shoes and black socks. So I was like so excited. I got to wear like white footwear. It was the 
oh my gosh, you know, Anna Green Gables, look out. <laughs> so I have puffy sleeves and white skates and I'm just so excited. And they had a youth gathering where they had an ice skating night and it was just like the most magical experience. It was so fun. All of the youth went, I had made it. Like it was like the, like just the, the pinnacle, right? Mount Everest of like, as a Mennonite girl, I had made it to a youth gathering in my white skates. And the next day they made an announcement that they were no longer having skating parties and only family were allowed to skate together. But guess who's all related? They're all related. I'm the only one that was not family. Oh. So they found a loophole of a way of having me not be invited to things. And so that became the big thing is that it was family. So we weren't invited to things, but we aren't family. So, you know, and how can you argue with wow. that? I'll never forget. Like I had asked, I, I was deeply needing connection and community. And so I had asked the deacon's wife if we could have a sewing circle. So I thought that would, I mean, if everybody comes, like, how can you get into trouble? Right. And, and she said, no, 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 because like a group of women that would be together would gossip. I'll never forget. I was like, who are they going to gossip about? We're all yeah. there. You can't talk about people if they're there. Um, so I did for a while really try to reach out and connect with people, but I wasn't allowed to have friends. And anybody that got close to me, there was that fear. They were going to be sent away. So of course you're not going to, you're not going to communicate. So I was very isolated and alone. Oh, that sounds awful. Did they ever try to just send you away instead of sending everybody else away? Oh, yeah, they sure did. And that's a really good question. Yeah, they really, they did. And this was a, this was, I think, the original split of when my mom started to see through the bullshit. Like, she will talk about this. Like, there was a deep disconnection in our family over me. I was the constant source of struggle. And I don't believe that. But that's how I, at that time, perceived that I was the source of all of all the problems, not the fact that the church was making this like incredibly impossible yeah. to, to succeed. But at that point in time, I felt responsible for all of my family arguments. And my dad wanted to send me away because I think my dad was so over it. Like he just was like, just send her away. Just like, you know, um, just send her to a facility. Just get her out of here. And my mom was like, absolutely not. Where I'm not sending my child away. I, I'm not doing that. And my mom put her foot down, which was not allowed in the church at all um, in the headship. But my mom was like, yeah, no, not happening. And so I did not get sent away. And instead, my mom sought counseling for me, which was not allowed either. But she recognized that I was, that she was probably going to lose me physically. Like I, I was so despondent in my life. Um, and so I think that like that other brain, the, the one that's like, wait a minute, this is, what is going on here? You know, this is not normal and this is not healthy. And my child is struggling. My mom kind of kicked it into mm -hmm. gear. And so she went behind my dad's back and went behind the church's back and found a counselor for me to go to. And we used to have to sneak over to him once a week. And he saved me absolutely 1000% saved my life. And so I finally had somebody in my corner yeah. and it didn't 
look like I did um, in the church. And so it felt safe, too, that he was not going to be taken away from me. Yeah. But, yeah, they did. They did want to send my dad, not pointing him out. But, I I mean, I understand, like, with the the amount of stress that everybody was going under, um, it would probably make sense to send me away. But I did not get sent. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen because who knows what would have been in your future if you would have landed in another community already branded with Troublemaker on your chest. That would have been insane and so hard to deal with. Yeah, I really don't think I would have lived, um, to be very honest. I think like at that point, I was just gasping for air and really not functioning very well. So had they, had I been sent into something like that, I probably would have just not, I would not be here today. So I'm really glad that my mom intervened and, um, and that I had a therapist as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned in your outline that one of the big reasons you finally decided to leave the community is because of the courtship situation, the dating situation. They weren't allowing you to be with the person you wanted to be with. So can you talk us through what that dating looked like or the courtship looked like? Yeah, I can. I've never talked about this publicly. Mm, Exclusive. And this was an interesting unfolding of my story that I really blocked for a really long time until the last year. And through a series of finding several journals and really having to face some of the things I I recognized, you know, when people would ask me why I'd left, it would be like, oh, it didn't work out, you know, because obviously like I have enough leading up just for whatever I just shared was, was enough. Um, But one of the people that they had sent away was somebody that I deeply cared about. And it was consensually, uh, we both, we both cared about each other. In the communities, you're not allowed to date until you're 18. And while they say that they don't have arranged marriages, they they have influenced courtships, I would say. So typically how it would work is that if, if a boy decided that he liked a girl, he would let his ministry know. And then he would also reach out to her ministry to set the intention that he was interested in her and then her father. And then if you have the blessing of all of those people, then he would write a letter and ask and and set the intention that he was interested in dating. So it has to go through all of the channels before she's ever asked. That takes all the fun out of it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's very transactional. (laughs) It's like, I would like to buy this house. Can I please, you know, (laughs) So in my circumstance, as you can probably gather, the ministry was not so hot to trot about me. Mm -hmm. And this was our, we both went to church together. So we only had one ministry to really kind of make it through. Um, But that was probably not going to happen because they sent him away because of me. Mm. So I was really forced with this decision because I recognized that I was not going to be able to marry the person that I really wanted to be with. And as a Mennonite woman, there's limited resources for you to be a independent woman within the community if you are an old maid. And traditionally, if you are not married by 21, that's starting to raise some eyebrows. If you are mid-20s and have not been accepted um, or asked to be married, you are pretty much an old maid. What? So there's limited ways to create income within the community, and one of which is 
to be a school teacher, keep in mind they still only have a 10th grade education and they're not passing any state board requirements in order to be a teacher. They are, and in order to become a teacher, you have to be ministry approved. So once again, they're not going to pick me, the troublemaker, to teach the kids, to instruct their children. (laughs) No, not happening, right? So what future is there for me? Yeah. As a Mennonite, what what am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to live in my family's household where I have made, been made to feel like I am a problem and not wanted and that's it and not have any income, not be able to ride horses because, you know, an older woman is not going to be allowed to do that. And so I just really didn't have a future. And where we were at, unfortunately, in Southern Illinois, there were no alternative churches. I had explored going to a more liberal Mennonite church. Um, I was not, I was not gung-ho about leaving. I really didn't have an option at that point. And so I really explored and I wrote to several different more liberal Mennonite churches. I wrote to a few ministry and explained the situation um, that I was in. And because I was really church shopping to see if I could find a place that would, that maybe we both could go to, but ultimately he wouldn't leave. And so I was kind of forced to make a decision. And so I ended up just leaving. It's, It's interesting. Like what would have happened had they just embraced me for who I was? Right. And be with who I wanted to be. Who knows? But it didn't happen that way. How did you actually leave with nobody on the outside? Or did you have people on the outside that you could talk to people who weren't Mennonite? Yeah. So I have this whole family unit, right? Because my parents joined in. And so everybody is still on the outside. So I was still had people Although I did not have really a relationship, I I don't have this sense of feeling like I had anybody in the family that I could call and tell them what was going on. And I think that it's so interesting, like, and I do talk to them now about this, like, what do you do when one of your family members joins into a cult? Like, you can't legally save the children, right? You can't go in and say, I'm taking your kids away from you. You know, how do you foster that? And that relationship. So that way at at the end of the day, if the children need to be taken out, like, um, and, and that, unfortunately I did not feel like I had that, but I also wasn't just like without that. So fun facts. So I had been going to my therapist for a year and a half leading up to me leaving. And I'll never forget the first time that I met with him. He told me, he said, I am not here to make you stay. I'm not here to make you leave. I'm here for you. And I'd never had anybody tell me that, and especially a man. And he, he meant it. I mean, he really did. And I think about how challenging that must have been to support me as I was going through that without ever bringing in his biasness and being yeah. like, these people are nuts. Like, you know? And so he really tried to help me to set me up so that I could succeed if I left. And he helped me write my resignation letter. So I actually uh, resigned my membership instead of allowing them to excommunicate me. Uh, and he he helped me with that because he said, this is something for your confidence mm-hmm. that will become so empowering for you. And uh, he, he taught me this phrase. I signed it. I'll never forget. So one of the things that the Mennonites do, the Amish don't do this as much. The Mennonites are really great at harassing and 
manipulating and guilting members that are leaving. So they'll send, they'll, they'll drop by your house unannounced in the middle of the night or any hour. They'll send all of these horrific letters that are, you know, you're going to hell and please come back and all this. And I didn't want any of that. I did not want to meet with the ministry, nothing. So he said, okay, let's build that in there. So I, I built in my, my parents support my decision. I do not want you to come by. And then we signed it. Your anticipated cooperation is deeply appreciated. And he said, Jasper, you will, this phrase keep with you the rest of your life. And he was like, it means no business. You know, how can you argue with that? And so I sent the letter and I heard that the bishop stood up and said that I had withdrawn my membership, although the lifestyle that I was now leading would call for excommunication. (laughs) And that lifestyle, I was still wearing a head covering. I was still wearing like long fundamental dresses. Like I wasn't doing anything. But my mom had left three months before. So she had actually withdrawn her membership. So it was the two of us. And so now that I lived in a house divided. Uh, my father was still working for them and, and a member. And then the two of us were outside of the church. And that then created a huge source of contention as well uh, that I had to live in for a really long time. What about your brothers? Did they stay with your dad? My mom never left. Nobody left the home. Um, So our home was divided within the home. And as you can imagine, that is not easy. My one brother went to Mennonite school through first grade. And then my mom did not send him back. She put him in public school and the same as the youngest one. So they were kind of byproducts of, they would go to church with my dad to Mennonite church and then they would come home and uh, they were very much torn. And it was a really difficult time again, um, as you can imagine. I think there was a lot of fear because my dad was working for them. And so our financial existence and, and how we lived very much depended on if the church would keep my dad employed. And there was a lot of fear in our family around, around that for years. You know, if, if we didn't play the game or if, if they felt like he was a risk, they would let him go. And then what would my dad do? Because he'd let go of his social security. Mm -hmm. He hadn't worked for anybody for so long. He'd worked for Mennonites, you know, it was, it was just like, there was a lot riding on, on the line of keeping in line to make sure that we made sure that dad stayed employed. Yeah. At what point were you able to physically get out of that place and move somewhere else? (laughs) I was 20. I had been accepted into a really wonderful college in Missouri called William Woods University, which is really well known for their equestrian program. I I knew I wanted to go into horses um, Mm -hmm. in school. I got my GED. I did all the appropriate things. I took my ACTs. I I hurtled through uh, my severely undernourished education um, to be able to at least meet the bare minimum standards to be able to get accepted into a college. And so I was accepted into William Woods, which would have been fantastic for me. It was a four-year program, really well-known. And it was a girls' school at the time. And that would have been really great for me also because I just really was uncomfortable around men. Uh, But my parents did not support that, um, me moving away. So I ended up going to community college um, for two years instead and then 
moved away to go to school. I went for one semester and then I got pregnant and got married um, by the time I was 21. Mm. And so I was not allowed to go to school. My, my husband uh, would not let me. So <laughs> I just wanted to become educated. That was it. That was, that was the only thing I wanted. I, I did not want to be married. I did not want a family. I just wanted to ride horses and go to school and learn how life worked yeah. and science worked. Um, so it took me a long time to be able to actually do that. I had to get divorced. Um, so I left a cult, got married, had a child, and got divorced by the time I was 24. That's a lot. From 18 to 24. So in a five-year span. Wow. Um, I did all of that and never, ever addressed any of my trauma. Um, I just kept rolling. So I finally, at the age of like mid-20s, I had to move back into my Mennonite community in oh, order to no. do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Back in it. Uh, but I, I did move back home and finished my education in a very non-conventional way, I would say, as a single mom. Um, but yeah, so I, while I did get away, I ended up having to go back into, into that space for a really long time until probably about 10 years ago um, when wow. I was, then I moved states. Yeah. Okay. So then you, you moved out and then how did we land here? How did we get to the point where you are now platforming other people's stories and sharing their stories? And I mean, you got invited to speak at Congress. Like, tell us all of that. Yeah, I'll just play push fast forward really quickly. Um, but it kind of makes sense. Like, so I really spent the the ten years after moving away, uh, really working towards my, my career really mattered to me and my education really mattered to me um, because I knew that I, I felt like I had been given a lease on life. I'd made it out of the church and I was going to do something with my life. And so I spent a lot of time um, trying to figure out what that looked like. And I had this deep sense this whole time of knowing that I needed to write a book, what that book looked like. Who knew? Because really, I didn't even understand trauma. I didn't understand a lot of my behaviors or what I'd gone through. I'd never had anybody really sit down to be like, wow, that's a lot that you went through. How are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> I never had that because I had to just keep going um, as a single mom. And I'm sure that any single mom that's listening, I mean, being a mom is is a lot to begin with, but I was a full-time single mom um, working four jobs and living in government housing and wow. um, trying to make my way into the work in, workforce and figure out life and figure out what it was like living outside of a community that I'd been raised in and not giving my spa myself the space to really acknowledge what I'd gone through. And so through that, I had shared parts of my story online on social media for a really long time. Um, so in 2017, I hired a life coach and had this huge eat, pray, love uh, experience and decided that I wanted to get out of the horse industry and devote my time to writing my book. And I didn't know what that looked like, but I was, I was going to start there. So I did that and I threw myself into it as I so often do with any of my things that I do 100%, like an insane person. <laughs> and, and, um, and then I was crushed because all the feedback that I got from trying to pitch this, this book was that I didn't have a following. I didn't, 
nobody could relate to this stuff. And I felt like when The Handmaid's Tale came out and the book Educated came out, I felt seen for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And it also caused a huge amount of um, the uh, activation within my body. I don't like the word triggered. I like the word activated. (laughs) And so I was very activated (laughs) and it was very debilitating, but I was really forced to just stop. And to recognize that all this stuff had actually happened to me and what it felt like to be seen um, for the first time by strangers. Yeah. And it was, it was a lot. And I was going through a lot at that period of identity. I was just so gung ho though. I just, I, I was in this, like 2017 was very fascinating on social media um, and Pinterest and Instagram because it was all, there were so many people that were coming into the life coaching world. And, um, and so there was a lot of this permission to just take messy action. And I'd never had that before. Like I always thought I had to be perfect. And this girl, you know, still very much on the girl boss era. And so I was out running sprints one day And I just had this overwhelming thought because there was stuff going on online on Facebook um, within the Mennonite community where they were covering up some um, child pornography crimes, um, this group of men. And they were threatening to blackmail um, one of my friends because he was talking about it online and calling them out. And I just read Brene Brown, Daring Greatly, the year before. And so I was really like on a quest of vulnerability and just owning everything. And I was just in it, right? It was just, I drank the Kool-Aid and I had this thought and it was like, the way that the ministry has continued to control us is through fear of exposure of who we really are as as people. But what if we beat them and we share our own stories? What do they have to blackmail us with then? What can they silence us with? So I was very much still in that, that mindset of, you know, own your story. And so I text my friend and I said, Hey, if I started a podcast, do you want to like co-host with me? He was like, yeah. And I was like, cool. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to podcast. I didn't even know what Google Docs was like two years before. I've been out working in barns and in the horse world. So, but I'm a, I'll figure it out or all day long. I will hyper fixate on that. My ADHD loves that. So I came home and was like, I'm, I'm going to start I'm going to start a podcast. And I just had this concept of what it was. And a lot of it really originally started with showcasing the variation of those of us that had left the community, how we were living. Because for people on the outside on social media, if they were to look at all of my success, whatever success looks like, but for me, I was doing it, right? I was, I was, working in the hunter jumper world. I was traveling to Europe and purchasing horses for investors. I was managing small barns. I mean, like I was doing great and I was not giving a fair representation to what it is like to leave these communities. And I realized that, and I wanted to give context. I wanted to give nuance. I wanted people to hear other people's stories so that we had a spectrum of what it is like for those of us that leave. I think I also, in some place wanted permission to be able to use my voice because I'd been hiding behind writing. Um, and I also recognized if I was ever going to get my book published, I needed to be able to like show that there was a, a, a thing worth publishing. Um, right. So, and that, and then I wanted to start a scholarship foundation for women that were leaving. Like I was very ambitious at this point. Um, yeah. And so I figured it out. I figured out how to do a podcast. Um, it's terrible audio. 
who cares? (laughs) To me, I was very much embracing that it was just fun. I was having fun creating something that did not exist. I'll never forget. Like I I went home and I Googled like Amish podcast, Mennonite podcast, nothing. There's nothing. And I'm like, okay, I can create something that's never been created before. And so I did. And it was so fun. It was just, it was so much work. Yeah. Oh my God. As you know, (laughs) it is so much work, but I just threw myself into it. I was editing all of my own stuff. Um, at the time I was going through a breakup. I was going through, um, unstable home living situation. I was trying to raise a child and be self-employed. I mean, and then here I am, I had originally booked three people. I thought if I can find three people, like I'll maybe find like a couple more and whatever. And within those three weeks of the podcast coming out, I had booked for a year, every I'd f- like over 50 people. Wow. And, and it was just like mind blowing to me. And I was like, okay, this is so bad. Like I had no idea. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And so I just really, I thank God I had no idea what I was, what I was taking on or else I probably would be like, this is a lot of work. I don't know if I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, uh, and it was, it was fascinating because like I said, like I was really just trying to give context of what it was like to leave the church and live out here in the world. And I had no idea how horrific the stories were going to be. I say that in the most loving way. Right. Uh, but yeah. they're horrible. Um, and the horrible ones never make it on the podcast cause they're so terrible. Um, and filled with just horrific news. And it was very eye-opening for me because I had no idea that this was such a pattern um, or that it was so prevalent because I was so, in my experience in the Mennonites, was I was made to feel like I was the only person that had all of these issues. And so it was really shocking to me to realize that while they had scapegoated me there was so much stuff going on and it's like the wizard of Oz. Just don't look behind the curtain. Um, and so I was just really blown away with it. That's incredible that you've been able to give voice to these people. There was clearly a need for it. People wanted to be heard. They wanted to be seen and validated through other people's stories. So having heard so many stories at this point, what are some of the through lines that you've noticed that aren't just specific to one person? You know, a lot of people will say in the comments, they were just an abusive person. That doesn't mean the whole community is, which of course I agree with that to a point. But when you have systems that are creating these abusive situations, it perpetuates this abuse in a way that wouldn't happen if there weren't those systems in place. So what are the things that you can point out now having listened to so many stories? Yeah, this is a really great talking point that I could go on and on about. Um, A, the amount of trafficking that happens um, and calling it not, oh, we're just shipping somebody out or they're going to go live with somebody else or they're going to a facility. Really understanding what was going on was illegal and is Ill- and is happening. Um, so they are labor trafficking and sex trafficking. This is across the board. It's illegal to take children out of a home. Like parents have legal rights and the amount of children that are extracted and homes torn apart because the ministry has ultimate power of um, its church members is horrific. 
It is it is something that really bo deeply bothers me. Obviously, I have my own personal story with that. Um, and so, but it was also fascinating to realize it wasn't me. I, this was happening across the board um, and that this is normal behavior and it's illegal. The amount of sex abuse is staggering, staggering to me, um, as well as domestic violence. That was something that was really fascinating. It was interesting because I started to notice patterns as people are writing in, as people are coming on and sharing their story. Um, I started to notice patterns of different districts that had higher rates, uh, it seemed, depending on who the bishop was than mm. some other areas. Um, and so I kind of just started noticing that, uh, the patterns, the lack of education. I mean, I can talk about this so much, not just sex education, but education in general. Um, it's so coercive and it's so calculated to keep, um, it's like what I read earlier, not even using words, um, all of these ways to keep people in and the sad thing is, is that there are people genuine, genuinely want to feel connected. They want to feel loved. They love a sense of community, right? We're designed for community. And people want to stay where they feel loved, seen, valued, and appreciated. So the fact that the church is not using any of that to keep their members in, and instead they're using fear, coercion, control, guilt, shame, um, literal physical um, barriers to keep its members in is so sad because I think that the church could be structured in a completely different way, but what would it take in order to structure the church so that it was loving and it was safe and it was a community? It's going to take a complete overhaul and do i see that happening i mean it's it's <laughs> it's going to take women talking women i've said this from the beginning women hold all the power in this and this is why they try so hard to silence the women the women know everything and as soon as the women start talking it's going to absolutely change because the men are going to have to be forced to you know this is the thing like we've given them the opportunity They've been given plenty of opportunity to change and they've shown the fact that they don't want to or they feel like they can't. Yeah. And so it's going to take an uprising from women and women to really start communicating and, and speaking out about the things that are happening and have happened to them, I think, really, in order to see any sort of change, unfortunately, because the men are going to be forced to. Yeah. And I agree with that because you do hear the good things just through the people who I interview, people saying that they loved learning certain skills and homemaking skills and gardening skills and whatever it is, and they love the homesteading aspect. And so I wonder if it would be possible, and I want your perspective on this, would it be possible to continue having communities that practice all of those positive things without those control factors within those communities, specifically the Amish and the Mennonites? I don't think that it will ever feel as feel the same. And that's that's hard to kind of put into words. Um, but if you've been a part of the community you, and, and left you, you know, nothing can really touch that sense of community. Even, even if you can be in any club or, and, and have that out here, there is something different about that that makes all of us that have left yearn for that. There isn't a day that doesn't go by that I don't want to be a Mennonite. 
every time I go into the communities, um, I just got back from Ohio from recording and I like literally was like, I, I think I could be old order Amish. Like, why wow. did I join the old order Amish? They're so much more liberal than how I was raised. But there's that sense of it where I'm like, I mean, I want, I want this, but I can't have it. And so there's sadness around that and that's okay. It takes me like five days to get over it. And then I'm like, I like my pants. You know, I like driving whatever yeah. I want to drive. <laughs> but I think, yes, you can recreate that. You can recreate that in the world. And, and social media has actually really facilitated that. That's what I always say. When my family joined into this, there was no alternative. There wasn't TikTok or f TikTok for homesteaders like there is now or yeah. anything that you can find people that are having commonality. You were kind of had to go into an insular community to find that or more fundamentalist. Um, so we do have that out here, but it's not going to ever recreate uh, what that community is within there. Um, and I don't know how to, how to describe that um, and to restructure that out here. But at least in your community, you can like, you don't, you can build trust and the person that you're planting radishes with is not going to, lock you away into an institution um, like you can in the Mennonites. So there's that. Yeah, I just had to get your opinion because we talk about that all the time. And people, for example, because I grew up Mormon, people will say, look at all the amazing things the Mormon church does and the family aspect and the values and the morals. And I'm like, yeah, that's all great. But you can have that outside of an LDS church. You can have all of those things still without having to give 10% of your income, without the guilt and the shame, without the one-on-one -on -one sexual conversations with a bishop confessing your sins. There can be all of that goodness without the confines of religion. And so I wondered if you felt the same way about the Amish, which it sounds like you do. Yes, you can still do all those wonderful things, but not be Amish. So with that, I need to get your Linda Listen statement, your sassy statement to anyone or something inspirational for our viewers and listeners. Yeah, I think like my biggest thing, honestly, we really didn't touch on this, is that people need to understand that the Mennonites are not Amish, and in oftentimes they're actually more conservative than Amish. Mm. But we have had to, unfortunately, piggyback off of the Amish name in order to get the media to pay attention to us, in order to get interviews, in order to get stories out there. And it's creating this illusion that the Mennonites are actually a safer um more liberal option because maybe they drive cars or they have pretty flowers or, or whatever. Right. Um, but people need to understand that the Mennonites have so much control um, and in some ways are actually far worse than like the more conservative Amish as they have more facilities, mm. illegally run facilities. They are trafficking children much more. They are um, a lot more deceitful. They understand the manipulation that they are doing. Um, they have built just as much as the Amish. They have built the brand. Problem is, is that the world will not see them for who they are. And so they mesh them in with the Amish. And by doing so, it eradicates uh, Mennonite voices. It teaches Mennonite women mm. that they are not heard or seen. And so people need to understand you need to listen to Mennonites and you need to specifically let Mennonite women speak. Yeah. All these men out here speaking on behalf of Amish and Mennonite women is cre recreating the same thing that happened within the church. There's certain influencers and there's certain um, people that are considered experts on the Amish and Mennonites, and they're all men. And they need to step aside and let Mennonite women and Amish women speak. 
Yes, absolutely. And if you know any Mennonite women who would be willing to come on and share their stories, please send them my way because we are always looking for referrals and people whose voices we can amplify. And that's part of our mission is exposing these groups within a perspective, a variety of different voices so people can understand all of the nuances. And I'm learning too, learning the differences and similarities between the two groups. So I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, for sure. I think that it. I, I see so many Mennonite women who feel like they their stories are, uh, I've seen this firsthand. Um, unfortunately, they'll sell their story rights to make a movie and they're Mennonite mm. stories and they will relabel them as Amish stories. And that just keeps recreating this ongoing and reaffirming this belief that Mennonite women and Mennonite stories don't matter. And yeah. they do. I mean, obviously. So, yes, I do have um, – I, I have some I think that would be a good fit. So I will reach out to them and Great. connect you guys. Yeah, yeah. Guys, if you're listening, definitely go check out the Plain People's podcast where she does amplify many voices. And I know you wanted to talk about you have a new season coming out that is specifically Amish. So I'm excited to see what you're going to come up with. Yeah, I'm really excited too. These are current Amish women in Ohio that have reached out to me. Um, so this is something that I have not done before and I don't think has been done. Um, and so I'm very, very proud of them. They are literally risking everything in order to share their stories, to be able to help people understand um, the barriers that they're facing currently yeah. as Amish me- women um, and keeping their themselves and their children safe. So I'm really excited. That'll be coming out sometime late fall, early winter. Okay. Well, definitely let us know when that comes out and we'll drop a little shout out on our community page so people know that it's available. And guys, you can also go follow on Instagram at the Plain People's Podcast. We'll link everything in the description below, any resources uh, that Jesper has for us. And this was so awesome. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Do you have any final words before we go? No, I just really appreciate the time. This is the first interview I've done um, since since the Amish. I've been hiding for really? two years. Um, oh. Yeah, <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> so it's it's really nice. Um, I find myself sometimes slipping into um, when you give other people their voices. Sometimes it's easy to lose your own. So I just appreciate you holding space for me and and my story and. Yeah. And I just really, it was a wonderful time. Yeah, of course. It was an honor to have you on. I'm sure it won't be the last time. I love connecting with other people who are also doing the work of spreading awareness. And I know how hard it can be and how re-traumatizing in a way sometimes these interviews can be. So I appreciate what you're doing and I see you and thank you for just spreading the awareness. Yeah, thank you. So everyone else who is watching, thank you so much for making it to the end. Let us know if you made it to the end. If you want to support the podcast, we have brand new merch, guys. It's the official C2C merch. We have shirts that say things like, I'm sorry for what I said when I was in a cult, Uh, break the silence, break the cycle, our official logo, some water bottles, lots of fun stuff over there. So you can find that at cultstoconsciousness.com on the merch tab. And you can also become a patron if you'd like to support in that way patreon.com slash cults to consciousness and if you like this video here are two videos that you're going to want to check out and until next time follow your highest excitement be conscious and be well thanks for listening if you like what you hear it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on youtube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility 
You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.